Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 57 of The High Low, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. What an incredible week it's been. The Eighth Amendment has been repealed. We are so thrilled by this news, as many, many people are. As Janice Turner said, this was a battle that all Irish women, but British women too, felt like they were fighting in their uteruses. I spent all Friday night replying to women who had messaged us, and in the end I actually had to give up and go to bed. So I'm so sorry if you have gone unanswered in my Instagram inbox. I loved hearing your stories and your passion, how many of you flew home to Ireland just to vote. I also want to issue some really important corrections and thank you to the women and men who patiently and kindly got in touch to educate me. The thing that you realise when you do a podcast or kind of anything actually in the public forum is the capacity for really basic human error and by that I mean really obvious mistakes. I apologise wholeheartedly for referring to Great Britain as the mainland, which is historically offensive and a hangover from when Ireland was part of Great Britain. It is, of course, a republic and we are not your mainland. I apologise also for referring to the UK as having abortion rights. Now, this was actually a really important and interesting geographical reminder, not just to me, but a lot of people. I've been speaking Mm. about it with friends this week and a lot of people did not know the difference. So the UK includes Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland does not have the legal right to an abortion. It is Great Britain, England, Scotland and Wales that do have the legal right to an abortion, not the UK. So a geographical reminder to us all there. We also really regret not mentioning the plight of the women in Northern Ireland who have not had a referendum. I think, like us, many people assume that Northern Ireland shares the same legal access to abortion as it is part of the UK, but it doesn't. There have been calls for Theresa May to put pressure on the DUP. Online platform The Notebook has launched a fundraiser to raise vital funds for the abortion support network, which helps pregnant women in Ireland and Northern Ireland access the healthcare they need and deserve. As we discussed last week, it costs around €3,000 or over £2,000 for a woman to travel to Great Britain for an abortion. And as the notebook reminds us, many of these women are still doing that in the Republic too. Because while Ireland may have voted for legal abortions, it could take months for the repeal to come into effect. For example, it took five months for the bill legalising same-sex marriage to actually become law. Also in the mailbag this week, we received an email from Katie, who works for the RCN Foundation, a charity that is part of the Royal College of Nursing Group, which supports nurses and midwives. She got in touch to let us know that the actor Amelia Clarke, who seems like a brilliant woman every time I read or watch an interview with her, teamed up with the charity to try and raise more funding for nursing, which is woefully underpaid and understaffed in the NHS, as we well know. If you'd like to donate directly, please visit rcnfoundation.org.uk I experienced firsthand during my labour the tireless work of the midwives who did not eat, check their phones or unless they teleported themselves even pee during their 12 and a half hour shifts during my labour I sent my midwives a love letter last week via my amazing midwife sister who works in the same hospital and I will certainly be donating to the RCN Foundation And of course, the coverage of the royal wedding has continued to flow forth. I really enjoyed Catelyn Moran on the royal wedding for the Times magazine, who let her go to town over about eight pages. She drops this morsel from an insider. Who are these insiders? Um, (laughs) Who said that George Clooney allegedly told his neighbour at dinner, it's so lovely to see them in love. I go to all these celebrity weddings where no one loves anyone, but these two seem like they really do. Riveting. (laughs) 
dying to know more. There's also this lovely paragraph about us loving the wedding because it's not just a fairy tale about marriage, it's the tale of a sad boy who became a happy one. And Catelyn writes, Never have I read or seen a story about the prince she wins, the prince from an unhappy family who loses his mother and spends years in chaos and misery, the prince who goes to war and takes from war not military glory and power, but instead sets up the Invictus Games so that those who are injured might find a new way to triumph, the prince who goes against all narratives of masculinity and is brave enough to speak openly about his own emotional and mental problems and revolutionises the way we think of a heavily stigmatised illness, the prince who rejects all the nice blonde English girls he's expected to marry and finds a woman from a different continent and culture, a woman who is emotionally stronger than him, brighter than him, more confident than him, and gives her, in front of a global audience of two billion people, his platform to show her world. Which is really lovely, I Beautiful. thought. Can we also talk about GDPR? Because I'm so fucking happy about this from all the millions of emails coming in from brands and companies going, hey, don't leave us. And I just sit there with my hands in my lap and the power of the ignore, knowing that I will now receive... 400 less emails a day along with mobile phone roaming becoming free abroad i find this the most exciting public policy my friend ed sent a screen grab of one of these beggy emails and he said this must be it was actually a text and he said this must be the most desperate one so far <laughs> win 500 pounds the data protection law is changing don't let this be goodbye act now Reply yes to keep receiving Fire Eater exclusive SMS offers. Reply yes and one customer will win £500. I'm quite surprised that people haven't done in the... I remember you once did a holiday out of office and it was like, don't leave me this way. Don't annual leave me this way. Right, okay, so I'm quite surprised. I'm quite surprised that no one's like inserted a GIF. I don't know, like, you know, some high street store being saying yeah. you've got to press yes if you're going to be on a mailing list. I'm quite surprised there hasn't been a little GIF. They weren't like, very don't yeah. Leave me. They should have come to Dolly Alderton. Well, for I the GDPR mailer. I, I do think they weren't very funny, any of them. They could, there was an opportunity there to be. You know. Are you are you clicking yes to any of them? I think I've no. clicked yes to about three because I quite enjoy being on their mailing list. No, I got a sense of power like you. It was a really enjoyable Just experience. sitting there looking at your it's inbox. really nice and there's fuck all you can do about <laughs> it. We are doing an author special today. So I just wanted to mention something up top that would otherwise probably be a discussion point for us on the Hilo. And that is Raheem Sterling's gun tattoo. I knew CJ would love this. CJ loves it every time we talk about football. He maintains <laughs> that our most successful episode is Neville Southall because we were talking about a footballer. So CJ's takeaway is be more football on the highlight. <laughs> so Raheem Sterling is a Manchester City football player. He's 23 years old. This was brought to attention by my football mad husband. And he's come under fire this week for a new tattoo on his leg of a gun. He has said that it was a tribute to his father who was shot dead in Kingston, Jamaica when Raheem was two years old and it is a reminder to never touch a gun. The FA have defended his honest and heartfelt decision to get inked but anti-gun campaigners have argued that he is glamorising guns. What do you think? I never know where I stand on, on stuff like this because it basically it all comes down to the question of how much responsibility do you put in the hands of people who read these semiotics how much do you nanny them how much do you censor how much of a role model is a role model what what does he owe us you know this as is, a 23 yeah. year old boy and i have to say i don't know how i feel about it, but i also know this is an incredibly sensitive subject at the moment with young men and guns so I, I really am conflicted on it i think what must be very difficult for him and indeed anyone is the, in the public eye is that a deeply personal motif a reminder never to stray down the wrong path and to always remember his father, who he tragically lost age two. You know, that's a really personal decision. And here he is on a global platform having to defend something. And I mean, his motivations for getting that tattoo are actually quite beautiful. Yeah. But as I was saying to Ollie, my husband last night, when we were talking about it, you don't see the intention. Unfortunately, the situation for him is that if you take it on face value... It looks like something quite different to how it was intended. As you say, this is such a flammable topic. I mean, as I said on the Hilo last week, there have been 22 high school shootings this year in America alone. 22. And then you've got a young man who's very much in the public eye, very much idolised, having a tattoo of a gun. So it, it is problematic, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's how much responsibility does he have to take for myriad interpretation? 
I don't know, I'm writing a piece at the moment that I kind of have to draw some sort of conclusion on how much responsibility it is for artists and people in the public eye and people who can influence consciousness to shape the opinions and 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 thoughts of the people who watch them and it's a huge question and I really am in two minds about it I really don't know as you say I think he completely retains the right to express his story in this way but it is very flammable well I look forward to reading that I think it's a the endless question of what do our role models owe us and how much should they, as you say, shape the kind of consciousness mm. and respond mm. to the global climate? And it always reminds me of that Eva Wiseman interview with Little Mix and The Guardian, where they just seemed so fatigued by the onus on them to kind of be mm. everything. Mm. And she was saying, you know, the Spice Girls never got this shit. Mm. Steps, and so how... you see steps <laughs> wrangling with, you know, ethical and moral conundrums. It's quite a philosophical question as well, yeah, kind of anthropologically about how much do we as individuals need to take responsibility for our own thoughts and actions? And it's something that I'm actually really conflicted on in life. You know, every time another pop star gets torn down, Miley Cyrus, Taylor Mm. Swift, Lena Dunham, I kind of really struggle between the, well, they've made a huge amount of wealth off the current climate, therefore Mm. they should respond and be sort of malleable to it and then on the other hand I'm like this is just one woman Mm -hmm. one young Mm -hmm. woman trying to do her best so we go around in circles forever it's interesting it's a big big topic it's It's, a big topic yeah I'd also like to bring up a topic that I would have definitely forced to have been the second topic this week had it been a normal high-low episode oh my god it's like a golden retriever isn't it it's national biscuit day this week (laughs) it's close to a golden retriever is that why your eyes lit up when CJ produced a packet of shortbread. He did, and um, I thought... a sugary snack, our producer. He does, actually. And it's normally not a shortbread. I have to say, it's normally a little bit more downmarket than that. It's so normally... unfair, because he can't respond. He can respond. CJ, you have a right to reply here. It's normally, am I right, a Bakewell slice? Is that more downmarket than shortbread? Boy, a whole different debate. What is your favourite biscuit? Because I've realised we don't really eat biscuits together. Normally we have cake. It's a Viennese whirl, a pastry or a biscuit. Biscuit. Okay, a Vien as well, 100%. <laughs> I'm obsessed with Viennese whirls. What about you? I don't really eat biscuits, I don't think. You strike me as like a rich tea woman. No, I hate rich tea. I know, that's why I said it, they're so bland. I so hate rich tea and I hate that, digestives. And me saying that reminds me of <laughs> when on my hen do, the, uh, the organisers of the hen did that age-old game, Mr and Mrs, oh, yeah. where they, uh, the heteronormative game of Mr and Mrs, <laughs> Mrs. where they asked my husband if I was a piece of clothing what would I be oh, no. and he said because he knew how much it would fuck me off that I would be an Ugg boot oh that's a horrible thing to say he's just saying that I'm very normal and cosy sometimes you know when you're in a group of friends and you're like oh if you were a blah blah what would you be yeah. I remember we were doing that once and it got to a point where it's like oh what motorway would you would we be and everyone was like oh Dolly is so the M1 and I remember being like really offended by it is that like a I feel like there's a subtext to a lot of people are driven down a anyway my favourite <laughs> biscuit would be my favourite biscuit was the very short lived but very delicious caramel digestive so it had a yeah, layer I of chocolate you don't need to explain it to me Dolly right okay well that's um, that's the biscuit that's my topic done <laughs> that's my biscuit what have you been enjoying this week Dolly aka the M1 I have been reading a collection of essays called Nobody Cares by Auntie Donahue. Oh, I look forward to reading that. So Auntie Donahue is a Canadian journalist and she also does a fabulous newsletter that you should sign up to called Nobody Cares. And uh, it's just a great selection of essays. It's her first book. She really nails the art of a collection of essays in that she kind of swoops from light to shade and high and low which obviously you and I are a huge fan of that mix Um, an essay that I particularly love is when she talks about Catholicism that I think you'll find really interesting how it formed who she was when she was growing up and how dedicated to the faith her parents are and then there's a really beautiful ending to the essay where she talks about the fact that she turned away from Catholicism and moved to a much more kind of open spirituality and looked at kind of tarot cards and crystals. And it ends with this very beautiful scene of her um, 
reading her mum's tarot cards and them kind of talking about what their spirituality has in common. So that was a very beautiful essay. She also talks about her teenage obsession with Titanic. Uh, she talks about uh, alcoholism and sobriety, mental health. And my favourite section, I'd just like to read a bit from now, is talking about all the things that she's decided she doesn't like and sort of being a bit of a no person. Brunch. Fuck brunch, fuck it. I will not wait in line for eggs and salmon when I can make eggs in my home and defrost smoked salmon in my sink. I will not pay $10 for a plate of leaves. I will not pretend that I am happy sitting alongside a 14 top table propped up against a stranger whose hangover is overpowering the scent of my $25 breakfast. I do not think it's cute that it costs extra for sparkling water, nor do I want my pancakes to be seasonal or rich in flaxseed. I'm not interested in brunch. Brunch is not interested in me. When all-day fast food breakfast was introduced to the masses, I knew the rest of the world was on my side. As it goes on and on, it's very, very funny. Also to flag that today, friend of the high lows, Emma Gannon, has her second book out, The Multi-Hyphen Method, which is about having multiple careers. And I'm very, very excited to read. And also I think you and I are sort of multi-hypheners. Well, Emma's strapline, which I really aspire towards, is work less, earn more. Mm. She's unapologetic about carving up your career and your time in the way that best suits you i remember listening to emma on a podcast where she said i don't get up before 9 30 but i have to don't have children freelance you know i i like to start work a bit later so it's i think such a timely read yeah she's she's a powerhouse and i also think that she's starting a lot of really honest conversations as you said about about how money about money and how you can uh, have your fingers in lots of different pies. So that's how today, and I can't wait to read it. So many aphorisms. Have your cake and eat it. <laughs> Put your fingers in the pies and eat it. I've also been watching Patrick Melrose on Sky Atlantic, and I am addicted. Isn't it incredible? It's filmed so beautifully, which jars in this wonderfully uncomfortable way with the horrific subject matter. And I feel like it's really part of this golden age of telly we have right now. So the TV and streaming platforms are locked in this battle. And the people that win are us because the content just gets better and better. I think it's the best thing I've seen on British TV in years. I think it's so... Even the credits, the soundtrack, the way, the colouring of it, I just think it's so arresting and uh, harrowing. It's really harrowing. But as you said, it's kind of juxtaposed with this almost cartoon-like way that it's shot. Benedict Cumberbatch is amazing in it. Um, It's such a sensitive performance. And, you know, I I really have like a physical reaction, particularly to episode two, which really goes into the abuse that he was a victim of in childhood. I just think it's incredible. On the subject of tormented poshos, incidentally, I took your advice and watched A Very English Scandal. And God, blow me, quite literally, the second episode was great. It's good, isn't it? Hugh Grant plays a predatory gay man so well. Although I don't think strictly he can pass aged 57 for a 32-year-old politician. That's quite a stretch. Is he meant to be 32 in this? Oh, God. I mean, that is optimistic. (laughs) Anything else you've loved this week, Doll? I've been listening to more episodes of Soul Music. It's your new Desert Island Discs. God, I love it. Um, I've talked about it a lot on the high-low, but the two episodes that I really want to flag, um, first of all, Strange Fruit, which is a song that was made famous by Billie Holiday. And it's had lots of beautiful... um, interpretations including Nina Simone's um, interpretation is very famous and it's a harrowing song about lynching in the deep south and the episode is about the song but it's more about the history of lynching and tells the stories of specific instance of lynching that is uh, very upsetting particularly as they they interview family members of the victims of lynching and the reason I think it's really important that we listen to it is it's certainly something that I only had a cursory knowledge of and more and more I think if we kind of are committed to ending racial inequality we have to really understand this stuff in our history and really understand it properly and in detail so I think it's a really important thing to listen to and finally I'd like to recommend the Hallelujah episode of Soul Music which is about the Leonard Cohen song made latterly more famous by Alexandra Burke. <laughs> and also the OC, when Marissa dies. And, uh, 
and my favourite version, Jeff Buckley. Uh, but it's another very moving one, but it's very uplifting. And there's a strand in it that I think you would find very, very moving, which begins with a man talking retrospectively about why this song was so important to him when he was a young single man, and then goes through big milestones in his life and he talks about why the song has mattered so much at different points and I won't spoil it because it's a beautiful story but um it's kind of the stuff of life I think when you listen to it and um yeah found it very moving so just listen to both of those what have you been enjoying this week I've read so many great profiles this week. My husband was a total hero and took the baby all Sunday morning, which meant that I read and read and read. So I will whistle through some of my favourites, although for honest, I could go on for days. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie by Larissa McFarquhar for The New Yorker on coming to terms with global fame. In Nigeria, Chimamanda is as famous as the president. Amazing. I loved Hadley Freeman on Hugh Grant for The Guardian and Caitlyn Jenner by Diana Torji for Broadly. I hadn't read an interview written by a trans journalist on Caitlyn Jenner. I had seen lots of complaints about her from the trans community on social media, but I hadn't read anything, an interview with her by a trans journalist. I just wanted to read something by Diana here because I think it was quite an interesting, balanced look at Caitlyn. As a trans woman and a journalist, I've always found the wholesale rejection of Caitlyn Jenner to be short-sighted, says Torji, of the wrath that Caitlyn has faced for having Trumpian values and not really knowing much about her fellow trans women. When Caitlyn came out, she was perfectly situated at the top of Americans' most worshipped pop culture family, which gave her a portal into the mainstream media that no one else could access in quite the same way. The fact that she is a legend in sports history only amplified her significance to me. One of our greatest national icons of male identity was revealed to be a hoax by a transgender woman. By coming out and transitioning before our country's largest media outlets, Caitlin unveiled a national identity crisis that will continue to disrupt classical gender narratives in the US for years to come. I have to say, I didn't find Caitlin remotely interesting on Channel 4's very controversial, but also quite dull show, Genderquake. But I did find Diana Torji's profile very interesting. That's on Broadly, and it's worth a read. Another one I loved was Decca Aikenhead on Chelsea Clinton, also for The Guardian. I think Decca might be up there with Lynn Barber mm. as the best interviewer mm. of celebrities. Chelsea Clinton is really interesting about her former friend Ivanka. They were friends right up until, I think, 2016. Um, but now, as she says in the piece, she is a grown woman. She's a 36-year-old grown woman and she needs to take autonomy for her decisions. But it's a brilliant interview all round. She's a smart woman and Decker is a brilliant journalist. And lastly, an interview for the Sunday Times magazine with Patti Smith, who talked about how her anarchic punk persona was one given to her and not one she knowingly created. And that when she behaved like a homemaker, because that's always what she wanted to be and do, people came down on her like a ton of bricks. One magazine, she says, called Miss, came to interview her and when they saw her doing her boyfriend's laundry, they dropped the story. I don't want to be defined as a punk priestess, the wild Mustang of rock, or whatever they called me, says Patty. I did my best work when I was married and out of the limelight, and people found it so vile. They would do articles on me that depicted me flying through the air with udders. I think that's something really valid about the way we expect feminist icons to behave. It's a wonderful interview, Dolly. I'll definitely read that. I love Patty Smith. You'd love it. I really enjoyed Ali Wong's second comedy show, Hard Knock Wife, on Netflix. Ali is an American comedian and she hit fame with her first show, Baby Cobra, when she was pregnant with her first child. And I remember thinking, I must watch that. And I never got around to it. So I caught her second one, where she's pregnant with her second child, um, as it dropped on Netflix and it's very funny. It obviously resonated with me as someone who's just had a child myself. She has this bit where she says that when you become a mother, people think you've transformed into a new sort of holier than thou person. But she says, I'm the same old piece of shit I always was. Maternity leave is not just to bond with the baby, fuck the baby. <laughs> Maternity leave is for new moms to hide and heal their demolished ass bodies. My husband occasionally changes diapers, and when people hear that, oh my God, confetti everywhere! <laughs> Lucky you! 
I would do skin on skin contact every day to bond with her. She shit on my chest. <laughs> Where's my confetti at? And my last recommendation, I've been watching Atlanta, which is the brainchild of Donald Glover. Donald is a 34-year-old actor, comedian, musician and writer, and he's having a bit of a moment, quote-unquote. He's also the man behind Childish Gambino, whose recent politically charged music video, This Is America, has had over 210 million views on YouTube. And we've actually received a lot of... Um, messages to the high-low mailbag about kind of the power of of this music video and what it says. I basically watched Atlanta at the same time as reading this astounding profile written for the New Yorker in February where Donald who comes across as this insanely clever and quite odd quirky man everyone who knows him say they never really know what he's actually thinking he talks in this piece about the machinations of getting an all-black comedy made. The piece also introduced me to the term Trojan horse, which is so interesting. Have you heard of that term before, Dolly? No. So it means presenting what the networks want to see and then hiding your real intention, the narrative inside it. So Genji Cohen, for example, did this with Orange is the New Black. She explained to NPR that she created the show around a white, straight, upper-middle-class girl called Piper who goes to prison. And Piper is the Trojan horse. She said, you know, you're not going to go into a network and sell a show on these really fascinating tales of black women and Latina women and old women and criminals. Inside, mm. Piper were those tales she wanted to mm. tell about women who were less privileged. So it's really interesting. Atlanta doesn't have this grand narrative and that's the whole point. It's about black people living in Atlanta and it's clever and funny and laden with meaning. So I really recommend that as well. I think my Trojan horse for the high-low is, we think it's about zeitgeist stuff, but really it's about National Biscuit Day. I was about to say, you think it's about current affairs and hiding inside is a bloody biscuit. Support for the high-low comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, Dolly and I cast our eye over the news and look for someone or something that has changed the status quo. This week, I'd like to nominate Serena Williams, who made a blistering return to the courts in a Black Panther-style Nike catsuit just six months after having her baby. It makes me feel like a superhero, she said to all these stuffy old tennis-white diehards. Serena, you are a superhero. Thank you to Serena for being the bodacious and audacious world-class icon, and to Google and the Google Pixel 2 for indulging our curiosity always. It's now time for the top line, read by Dolly Alderton. Now here's a challenge, CJ. Can you put in a biscuit-related song? American comedian Roseanne Barr has had her sitcom cancelled by ABC after posting a racist tweet about former Obama aide Valerie Jarrett. Roseanne, the Donald Trump of sitcom, as one BBC journalist put it, is no stranger to controversy. She apologised via Twitter to Valerie, saying that because of her mistake, hundreds of people had lost their jobs. Britain's largest family is set to get bigger as Sue and Noel Radford have announced that they are expecting their 21st child together. The baby boy will be almost 30 years younger than his oldest brother. Harvey Weinstein has been freed on a $1 million bail with a monitor attached to his ankle after handing himself into the Tribeca police station in New York City on Friday. Weinstein has been charged with rape in the first and third degrees from an incident in 2014 and for a criminal sex act against another woman in 2004. More than 70 women have so far come forward to accuse the 66-year-old producer of rape and sexual assault. Wetsuits could soon be redundant thanks to warming sea temperatures caused by rising greenhouse gases. The sea is thought to rise by 4 degrees by 2080. Scientists working with dolphins at a marine park near Paris have attempted to measure how the animals feel about aspects of their lives in captivity. In what researchers say is the first project to examine captivity from the animal's perspective, the team assessed what activities dolphins looked forward to the most. They found that the marine mammals most keenly anticipated interacting with a familiar human. 
Now I know why I got a C in my GCSE maths. A major study from researchers at Harvard have found that in years with hotter weather, pupils are likely to perform less well in exams. There is a significant link between higher temperatures and lower academic achievements, say economic researchers. An analysis of test scores of 10 million US secondary school students over 13 years shows hot weather has a negative impact on results. A rape survivor named Hope Cheston has been awarded a historic $1 billion. 20-year-old Hope was just 14 when she was raped by an armed security guard at a friend's birthday party in Georgia. Hope's mother filed a civil lawsuit against the agency who employed 28-year-old Brandon Lamar Zachary, who were found guilty of negligence. Hope is unlikely to see anything close to the full settlement, as the security company Crime Prevention Agency is not worth that amount, but it is still a historic and symbolic victory. A court has been informed that a woman organised the murder of her on-off boyfriend before posting footage of his death on Snapchat. 20-year-old Fatima Khan is accused of planning the killing of 18-year-old Afghan asylum seeker Khalid Safi in North Acton in December 2016. The victim was repeatedly stabbed in the chest, but instead of calling for an ambulance, Fatima Khan, a self-confessed Snapchat addict, is accused of filming him as he lay dying. She posted the video on Snapchat with the caption, This is what happens when you fuck with me. 4,000 doors in the London borough of Kensington and Chelsea are set to be replaced with ones that are fire resistant for 30 minutes. 72 people were killed in the Grenfell fire of June last year, into which a public inquiry was started last week. A school's therapy dog called Miss Peanut has been photographed and given a page in the school's yearbook. Miss Peanut comforts stressed students. A student posted a photo of the page with the caption, they put our school's therapy dog in the yearbook, which has so far been liked 85,000 times. A few others replied with the pages of their school's therapy dog in their yearbook. Let's hope it becomes a trend. And that was the top line. bloody Harvard study to discover that hot sunny weather means people aren't revising as much. It's not great about the um, rising temperatures of the sea, but you're quite happy to never have to wear a wetsuit again. I'm very, that's a very funny joke in reference to a Sunday Times travel piece I did in which I was photographed in a wetsuit and the photos will haunt me forever. So yes, I'm relieved that I will never have to <laughs> have the wetsuit camel toe. The Hilo comes from the glorious, delicious and effervescent in more ways than one, Moet and Shandon. This June, Moet is opening the Moet Summer House, a unique concept blending a private members club with Moet and Shandon's renowned spirit of generosity. The Summer House will open its doors from Friday, June the 8th to Sunday, June the 10th, with a weekend of events, from acoustic performances and DJ sets to supper clubs from renowned chefs, poetry readings and even a live podcast from us. Thank you so much to everyone who bought tickets. We can't wait to see you there. Highlights, aside from us, of course, include a piece of ballet directed by world-famous ballet dancer Eric Underwood, a roast dinner with Michelin star Jason Atherton, DJ sets by Josephine de la Baume, live music from Nick Mulvey and a pub quiz with Jack Innes. At 5.43 each day, Moet will host a generosity moment, offering a complimentary glass of champagne to each member in the house. Claude Moet, the founder of Moet and Shandon, had the dream to share the magic of Moet with the world with a renowned spirit of generosity, which the 5.43 moment will echo for 2018. You will know where to find me at that specific time every day throughout the summer house. Moet offering complimentary membership for all, so be sure to register for tickets now at www.moetsummerhouse.com. Our guest this week is a very, very special one. Not only is she one of the Hilo's favourite authors, she is one of the great American novelists of our time. Her books explore themes such as growing up, men, women, nostalgia, modernity, power and feminism. Books such as The Interestings, The Uncoupling, The Wife and now The Female Persuasion have earned her critical acclaim, a vital mouthpiece in popular culture and a home in the New York Times bestseller list. She is Meg Wallitzer. Thank you very much, Meg, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I discovered your writing a few years ago on my honeymoon when I picked up the beautifully multicoloured copy of The Interestings and fell deeply into this tale of a group of friends growing up. And whenever I think of my honeymoon now, I think of that 
book as I became so completely in love with your writing through it and bought all of your books. Your new book has taken the world by storm. The female persuasion follows the teenage Greer Kadetsky from her small town life with her high school boyfriend Corey to Ryland College where she meets her best friend, a lesbian and activist named Z, with whom she discovers the work of the feminist icon Faith Frank, who she eventually goes to work for at her feminist organisation Loci. It's a tale of growing up of friendship, ambition, failure, betrayal, love and intergenerational feminism, which is something we will talk more of a little later on. The Washington Post has called it a sprawling, marvellously inventive novel, ambitious and enormously entertaining. Vanity Fair called it wonderful. Vogue has said it's ultra relatable. And Lena Dunham, writing for The New York Times, has said... Wallitzer is an infinitely capable creator of human identities that are as real as the type on this page, and her love of her characters shines more brightly than any agenda. People, loving them, knowing them, letting them shatter and rebuild us again, are Wallitzer's politics, and that's something to vote for. Meg, before we go into all of our questions, how would you describe the female persuasion? What was the impetus behind it? I was interested in a number of things. One was female power, uh, misogyny, something that I've written about a lot, and um, also the person you might meet who changes your life forever. That idea to me just sort of is something that I've been really thinking about quite a bit. And I thought, oh, that's right, that moment when you meet someone who might be older, who sees something in you, and you take a path for your life that you hadn't expected to take. Let's make the most obvious point first, which is that this book has accidentally landed at the best possible time, which is in the immediate aftermath of Me Too. Could you have predicted what we are living through right now? Your book features a sexual assault, which the boy in question largely gets away with, save for a few t-shirts printed with his face on them. When I started writing the book, it was a very different moment, of course. You know, when the book was about to come out, I got a text from a friend in all capital letters who said, can you believe you have a book called The Female Persuasion coming out now? I mean, I've even been asked by interviewers, did you start it after the Me Too movement? I mean, I would have had to have gotten a lot of people in a room. They all would have called themselves Meg and we would have, you know, all taken a different chapter. It's over a 400-page book. But the truth is, these are old ideas that that we've all been talking about for a long time. Ideas around power, around misogyny, around making meaning in the world, about being female, growing up female, uh, feminism. So they are not new. So for me, when I began writing it, it was a different moment. And yeah, it's very strange for it to be coming out now. And yet, not so strange too, because anything that allows you to sort of talk about fiction, to me, is a good thing. Any way in to sort of discussing fiction in a real non-fiction world, I'm, I'm grateful for. And also, as you say, now it has a movement and we have the platform and the confidence to share these stories, but these stories have always been there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my novel, The Wife, which you mentioned, you know, really has issues around power and maleness and femaleness. But Yeah, I mean, the notion right now that people are speaking up and saying things that they weren't able to say before in the world is something that every day, like while we've been sitting here, something new probably has come out in the news. Who knows? Um, It's a a very fast-moving moment. You examine the contradictions and the flaws and the gaps in modern feminism, as well as its impassioned and well-meaning goals. For example, at one point we see Greer deliberately not putting her best friend forward for a job at the feminist foundation she works for, which is all about empowering yeah. women and changing the lives of women, which I thought was very poignant and very truthful. Was this examination something that was important to you? It's definitely important to show your characters as they are rather than as you want them to be. I mean, you hear from readers who get mad at you about all kinds of things, really. She shouldn't have done that. I mean, but I guess that says to me that they believed that the person did do it. But you have to kind of allow your characters to be annoying, boring, difficult, make decisions that you might not have made. But, you know, one of the reasons that I think I show, like to show people's childhoods is because well, in my next life, I'll be a psychoanalyst, I think. But um, the idea that this is someone, Greer, when she was a child, whose parents didn't really give her a lot of attention. So when she meets the famous feminist, Faith Frank, how's that for an alliteration? When she meets her and Faith sees something in her 
and sort of basically chooses her in some way, the idea of sharing that with her friend is something that's difficult. And it's not that I would have necessarily done what she did, but you can think about moments when you wanted to be the one, when you didn't want to share whatever it is you had. That felt real to me, so I had to just take a deep breath and do it. And Pandora and I talk a lot as well about the sort of sanctity of fiction, that it has to be this safe place where you can explore that stuff and the characters aren't held up to this kind of gauge of morality in the way that politicians are. No, I mean, we, there's a lot of talk around ideas about likability in characters and women are some, it's sometimes leveled Definitely. against women, yeah. you know, that your characters are meant to be likable. Of course, they're not meant to be likable. They're meant to be who they are. Sometimes they are likable and sometimes they're not. And I think that, yeah, I agree with you. Fiction is a place where you really the kind of freedom of exploration and play, that's how it begins. I, I mean, but the reason we have revision, which is like the greatest weapon in a writer's arsenal, is because you can then go and look and say, wait a minute, I wanted her to do that because I was still working out something from my life, but this is about her life. So now I'm going to go back. And is that right? Maybe not. So you really kind of tinker with it later on. Um, I didn't know that she would betray her friend. I wasn't making a larger point about women or about feminism, but this character in this moment, we're human. It, it goes beyond gender and into something else. I love the way you talk about your characters as if they are independent of you. You're like, you know, I didn't know she was going to do that, but that's no. the path she Right, chose. while I slept. It's like, fiction it's like toys that come alive at night when you're sleeping. Um. But I think that's the sign of, of, of a woman that's really brilliant at writing fiction, is you are just letting them unravel themselves, you have almost to. subconsciously. You do have to... Writing can feel like, what's that term, automatic writing, when you feel that, you know, your pen has been taken over by a spirit. The first time Greer sees Faith speak... Faith gives a very rousing and highly charismatic speech in which she talks about what feminism means to her. To quote her speech, she says there are two aspects. The first is individualism, which is that I get to shape my own life, that I don't have to fit into a stereotype doing what my mother tells me, conforming to someone else's idea of what a woman is. But there's a second aspect too, and here I want to use the old-fashioned word, sisterhood. Faith then goes on to say that it's so wonderful that millennials have so much more freedom than she did, but along with that freedom can sometimes come a sense that you don't need other women, and that isn't true. I have to say, as a reader, I fell for Faith completely oh, at good, that point. Good. I was Greer, and it felt like a very well-worded description of feminism. How much do you subscribe to that idea of, of that two-pronged feminism? I think it's an interesting idea. I don't know that I think about it in the way that Faith does exactly. I mean, I feel like, I don't know about you, but I've grown up feeling like a feminist sort of my whole life. I mean, my mother is someone who was very changed and affected by, by second wave feminism. She was a housewife who hadn't been to university and her parents didn't encourage her and she became a writer and she had no encouragement except other women started really, really encouraging her. So there is a sense of about it being about what you're doing in the world, but there is a, you're always, there's a nod toward other women. You talk about something that we personally struggle a lot with, of intergenerational feminism, second wave, third wave, and fourth wave, which has been described as third wave with social media. Feminists are often at loggerheads with each other, and it feels like we, and I say that culturally and collectively rather than Dolly and I per se, spend much of our time now telling women that they aren't good enough feminists rather than focusing on the larger issue of gender inequality. I mean, just earlier I mentioned how Patti Smith says how she was depicted as a cow and kind of betraying her fellow feminists for wanting to be a stay-at-home mother. And Germaine Greer, whose work was so formative in the 70s, now spends much of her life fighting with intersectional fourth-wave feminists. She was being on a show called Genderquake just this week doing just that. Greer and Faith's relationship begins to break down when Greer realises that Faith isn't the woman and feminist she thought she was. Was your book trying to make any points about this exhausting feminist infighting that we often find ourselves mired in? I think I approach it from a somewhat different angle. As a novelist, I feel like um, despite the sort of hot takes that are going on in the news, I sort of want to be the master of the warm take. And I think mm -hmm. that again and again, my mantra for myself is, what is it like? What is it like? So when I turn my lens, as it were, to 
women trying to make meaning in the world and, and often through feminism, and they were women of different ages, that did come up. Younger women have grown up in a very, very different world from the one that, say, Hillary Clinton grew up in. And of course, there's differing opinions and real criticism that can be correctly lodged. But that's part of it for me. But I think if it were the main thing, it wouldn't feel like a novel to me. It would feel like a polemic. It would feel yes. like a screed. I have to ask, is Greer named after Germaine? You know, it's so funny. I have said both yes and no to different people who've asked me that. Um, because I'm a real believer in the unconscious and, and in, in decisions that come about. So the first time I was asked, and I said no. And then I thought, that's crazy. No, of course not, no. When I was growing up, the female eunuch was on my mother's bookshelf. And, right, you know, yeah. and that and that incredible how, she, you know, I didn't read it as a child, but I saw the pictures of Jermaine Greer. And she, in, in a different way, was this very sexy, charismatic figure, but not meant to be Faith Frank. Um, so then I thought... It must be there in this way. Greer is not like Jermaine Greer, but it kind of, in a way, maybe I'm just sort of putting feminism in the air, in the water. There's almost a kind of room temperature that happens when you write a novel. And if you drop little droplets of things here and there, it kind of creates it. So both yes and no. I didn't mean to, but I guess I did. <laughs> I love that description of creating a temperature. And also when you read about Greer's parents being hippies that, yeah. that kind of met and had their courtship on a bus, you think those definitely are people that would name their kid Greer. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I've read you say the female persuasion is a novel, not a comprehensive social study. This feels like an important thing to point out, as one of the criticisms that, that the book has received is that it is an examination of a certain type of privileged urban feminism and isn't inclusive enough. Can you tell us more about, you, you've just touched on it in your last answer, but can you tell us more about why you believe the novel is a space to tell stories rather than, as you say, have the responsibility of being a kind of rigorous political report? I think novels can be rigorous and should be rigorous, but but it depends on what they want to be rigorous about. I mean, because once I dip into this particular pond of feminism, if I were to just sort of stay with that, I think that there are some sort of books of political criticism that can do it far better than I could. But what I can do and try to do that they're not trying to do is show how lives are lived. So what does it really mean to be this woman in the world, entering the world? Like, for instance, the scene where Greer goes to a frat party when she's at university. I've learned to say university since I've been here this week. I'm very proud of myself. Uh, Greer goes to a frat party at her college and uh, she's groped by a frat brother. And I realized, okay, this is a, a rigorous political moment for me as a writer because she leaves there and she doesn't know, wait a minute, did the thing that happened to me, is it something that I have a right to feel really bad about and to make a big stink about? Or do I just suck it up? Is this what it's going to be like being female in the world? And in, in exploring her and her evolution through that, I'm exploring ideas about what are we entitled to in the world? Are we entitled to freedom from sexual comments, freedom from being touched, uh, freedom from being spoken to, freedom from having to be made to feel uncomfortable, uh, let alone assaulted. What what are we entitled to? And can we say, no, that's not acceptable to me? Or is it something that, as she initially does, her face goes very, very hot and she doesn't know how to feel? She doesn't even know, was it an assault? No, that wasn't an assault. So it's not that a novel shouldn't or can't be political. I think it can and should. But it's going to do it in a really different way from a comprehensive social mm. study. 
Dolly and I talk quite a lot about how, especially in terms of kind of gender inequality, nothing happens in isolation. So it's not like rape or Harvey Weinstein are just like in a room on their own no. and they're the only bad things. It's the micro leading to the macro. So how the pat on the bottom segues into the, you know, the, yeah, the things hand we up do the shirt. in the same manner. This book, like many of your books, is a coming of age story or a building's roman of sorts, which happens to be my favourite kind of novel. Like Nora Ephron, who actually made her directorial debut with an adaptation of Meg's book, This Is My Life, you excel at all the big themes, but also at the little ones too. A criticism oft levelled at female novelists is that they don't know how to write the weighty stuff, so they write the domestic. But I think that misses the hugely important point, which is we live the domestic every day. We are the domestic, whether or not you are women or men. Are you fascinated by the minutiae? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wrote a novel called The Ten Year Nap, and it's about women who've had children and they decide to take some time off from their jobs and suddenly 10 years have passed. And one of the things that and one of the things that I really wanted to explore was the way that people didn't take them seriously. If like if you would meet someone at a dinner party, one of the characters and he might say and it could be a man, uh, you know, what do you do? And this woman in the book might say, "Well, I'm home with my kids." And she could see him look past her. You know, when I began writing that book, I myself had almost a kind of tone that was a little too brittle and comedic. And I felt it. there's a way in which it wasn't respectful of looking at what someone's life is actually like rather than sort of painting someone with a kind of big brush, the stay-at-home mom, the mom, you know, that I that's not what I meant to do. And the notion that what happens in a boardroom is always more important than what happens, say, between a child and a mother is one that I don't accept. One thing that came about that the book even had a sort of political quality is that more of the women were thinking about the ways in which the corporation that she may have worked for didn't love them and that they were just a cog and the corporation didn't embrace them and what they were in fact doing in the world suddenly didn't seem to be something they wanted to be involved with now that they'd had children. The domestic, I mean, I hate that word still mm. because it's been... Even using it then, I even just using like it's it, so right? It's like, it's boring. It sounds like laundry. Right, it's cool. like yeah. someone will turn off your podcast if we say domestic, yeah, domestic fiction. Yeah, we don't want to be the writers of domestic fiction. And yet, I think the fiction of the world, the fiction of lived lives... Of humanity. Is that, as well as other things, because within that comes all kinds of powerful things. Um, I Yeah, sometimes it's just about... It's semantics, really. Like Pandora says, your books are often coming-of-age stories. You vividly sketched the teenage and student experience in the female persuasion, particularly the millennial teenage experience. A brilliant formed example of this is how you weave through a millennial's male sexual journey. So you write a scene in which Greer loses her virginity to Corey and she's surprised by his manner in bed. And then you do this very perfectly weave flashback to his exposure to pornography in his early teens. Pandora and I speaking as millennials, I have to say it was a resounding excellent. (laughs) But that you know, that's another example though of the difference, say, between fiction and nonfiction. I don't then have to say the dull messagey thing, pornography had affected the way he had sex. You know, it's like, oh no one you know, you just show it, don't tell it. There's you know, you really want to show it and, and even play with it too. You know, there, there's a chance for some wit there. Arguably, of, this is advice which could be applied to Corey in that experience. Show it, don't. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Greer hero worships Faith from the moment she meets her. There's this wonderful bit where you describe Greer, a vegetarian, eating meat so that Faith would like her. You write, to eat meat when you hated it and when you hadn't eaten it for four years was an aberration, nearly a form of cannibalism, but also she told herself it was an act of love. In eating this, she was being someone Faith would want to continue to confide in and listen to and rely on, someone she would want to cook meat for. And I just love how warped that kind of idea, but we've all been susceptible to that kind of hero worship where you you do something in the hope that it will make someone like you a bit more or kind of admire you. And the, the power dynamic between 
between the change when you reveal Faith's imperfections through yeah. Greer's eyes. She makes ethically conflicted decisions with her charity. She sleeps with a married man. And these weaknesses make Greer revile her, even though Faith never asked for Greer's adulation in the first place. And it felt to me like a cautionary tale against building women up only to tear them down, which is something I am particularly preoccupied with, especially in the digital age. And it reminded me a lot of the young women in the public eye, the trajectory of Lena Dunham last year, where she made a few mistakes and the internet suddenly decided that she was deplorable and unwoke. Is that something that interests you in the way we depict women or see women? Oh, absolutely. Um, the internet, though, is a thing unto itself. Yeah. It's a sort of frightening place for that. I mean, it has a kind of unforgiving nature. There's a certain kind of person who is comfortable saying something and then seeing what happens. For me, as a fiction writer, because I was talking earlier about revision and how important that is, there's no revision. There's no revising what you say on the internet. I mean, it lives its life. But I think that beyond that... Um, yeah, women are held to certain standards all the time in, in all kinds of ways that men aren't held down to. We saw that with Hillary Clinton during the election. Even from people who were supposedly uh, left-leaning or Democrats, uh, there was a certain kind of snark. It had a different feel. It had a different quality because she was female. And yeah, absolutely, these are things that interest me to explore. We both read and loved The Wife, uh, your last novel, which we spoke about on this podcast. It's been made into a film starring Glenn Close, yes. which some have said is her finest performance of her career so far. It's an amazing performance. I went to Toronto to the film festival uh, for the world premiere of it, and uh, and she was there, and we all, and it was she got this you know huge standing ovation in the big, uh, I think it was like a symphony hall. It was a really exciting night for me. I mean, it's like you write these books and then there's this icing on the cake. And you know about this has been uh, that... We were going to ask. Oh, oh. oh you don't know? No. no. I have news to Who is here. playing oh, Faith? Well, maybe we can play a little game. Okay, go on. <laughs> she said coming into the podcast as if she was the host. Yes, now let's play a game. No, that's so much more fun. Okay. Um, who do you think, okay, can play Faith? and is so fantastic and with the miracles of makeup could go older and go a little younger. Meryl Streep. No. Nicole Kidman. That's it. Yes! You can imagine her in Faith's suede boots. You can look at what she put on Instagram. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah, very exciting. We were about to say, if the female persuasion is adapted, which we were sure it would be, who would play Faith? Yes, very good. Are we allowed to try and guess who will play Greer? No, that's all I know so far. Oh, damn it. Because so I think... Who, um, would you, who would you like to play Greer? That's all I know is... Um, Rooney Mara, I can imagine, doing oh, a good, good Greer. Because she's kind of innocent. Um, and she has all that inner conflict underneath that kind I'll of... I'll tell my people. <laughs> <laughs> and are you writing the no. screenplay? No, 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 no. You know, that's the thing. I just... I did it. I did the book. It's like, I think it would be diminishing returns because I, I didn't write the wife screenplay either. This wonderful uh, screenwriter, Jane Anderson, who wrote, did they have Olive Kitteridge on television here? Uh, it rings a bell. Yeah, I never got it was to it, uh, exactly. by my friend uh, Elizabeth Strout, the writer, if you know. Her yes, so, yes. Yeah. Um, so Jane Anderson wrote that and she wrote the wife as well. Is there an excerpt that you would like to read? Sure. Um, let's see. The other thing that I sometimes do, you read a little bit of, which is um, Faith's speech. So I won't do that. I'll just do the very, very, very beginning. Greer Kadetsky met Faith Frank in October of 2006 at Ryland College, where Faith had come to deliver the Edmund and Wilhelmina Ryland Memorial Lecture. And though that night the chapel was full of students, some of them boiling over with loudmouth commentary, it seemed astonishing but true that out of everyone there, Greer was the one to interest Faith. Greer, a freshman then at this undistinguished school in southern Connecticut, was selectively and furiously shy. She could give answers easily but rarely opinions. Which makes no sense because I am stuffed with opinions. I am a piñata of opinions, she'd said to Corey during one of their nightly Skype sessions since college had separated them. She'd always been a tireless student and a constant reader, but found it impossible to speak in the wild and free ways that other people did. For most of her life, it hadn't mattered, but now it did. 
So what was it about her that Faith Frank recognized and liked? Maybe Greer thought it was the possibility of boldness, lightly suggested in the streak of electric blue that zagged across one side of her otherwise ordinary furniture brown hair. But plenty of college girls had hair partially dipped the colors of frozen and spun treats found at county fairs. Maybe it was just that faith that 63, a person of influence and a certain level of fame who had been traveling the country for decades speaking ardently about women's lives, felt sorry for 18-year-old Greer, who was hot-faced and inarticulate that night. Or maybe Faith was automatically generous and attentive around young people who were uncomfortable in the world. Greer didn't really know why Faith took an interest, but what she knew for sure, eventually, was that meeting Faith Frank was the thrilling beginning of everything. It would be a very long time before the unspeakable end. Oh, I could listen to you Me read too. that for us. <laughs> a pinata of opinions is exactly why we love you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's an excellent turn of phrase. Thank you so much, Meg Wallitzer, for coming on to the Hilo. We have loved having you. The Female Persuasion is published by Chateau and it is out on June the 7th. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to episode 57 of The Hilo. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to The Hilo on iTunes. It helps boost us in the charts and helps other people to find us. You can email us thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.